0: First John chapter five, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request of, which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God's sins, but he who is born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Father, we do thank you for this this letter. We thank you for this great Apostle John, Lord, who we've come to know, who we've met through the scriptures. Lord, I thank you for his life. Lord, just how it's laid out before us from the Gospels being this young man full of energy. Lord, often off in his of understanding of what you wanted for him lord we thank you that we see in the word lord how your spirit has worked on him how your love has transformed him that through the course of his life lord that he's transformed into this this dear man who loves you who abides with you who encourages us to love one another as we abide with you father i pray that as we finish this letter that you would really truly speak to us in a way that we understand Help me now, Lord, as we work through this passage. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So we're wrapping up, and this section, verse 13 in particular, is sort of the the purpose clause. John says exactly why he writes this letter. If we went to the Gospel of John, we would come to the 20th chapter, the 31st verse, and he tells us explicitly in the Gospel of John, why he wrote. When he wrote the Gospel of John, the the person that he had in mind was the unbeliever. And so as he wrote, as he thought about what to say, as he prayed and God inspired him to write the Gospel of John, he had the unbeliever in mind. And he tells us that he wrote the things he wrote so that the unbeliever would move from unbelief to belief and receiving eternal life through Christ Jesus. Now, 1 John... He's not writing to the unbeliever. In verse 13, we see that he writes these things uh, that they would know to those who have trusted in Christ, that they would come to believe in Christ as Savior. Uh, Throughout this letter, we've seen that what he wants from us is that we would experience fellowship with the Father. Fellowship that means intimacy, intimacy as as a husband and wife, a closeness that, that no other human relationship can describe that we would abide with him, that we would come to know God and his great love for us. And that as we come to experience and know God's love for us, that this love would basically bubble out into our lives. And we would then love in a way that the world doesn't know that we would love one another within the church, that we would love those outside of the church and as he writes all of this he is overwhelmed with the the reality that there are those that came that, that came up from within the church who steered from god's grace and they began to teach heresies they were trying to steer people away from the, the truth of god's grace and in this section from 13 to 21 he says this phrase that we may know so many times he wants us to have certainty, clarity, confidence that the things we know are true. Look at it verse 13. I'm just going to kind of fly through these. The first thing he says after he identifies who he's writing to, he says, "so that you may know that you have eternal life." From there he speaks of this confidence down working down to verse 15, on the confidence of prayer. He says, "and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request and he continues down to verse 18. He says, we know that no one who is born of God sins." verse 19. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Verse 20. And we know that the son of God has come continuing in verse 20. He says, so that we may know him who is true. He wants us to have confidence when the world sees this confidence radiate from christians they think oh that's so that's arrogance how can they know that you're just looking down what's true for me is true for me and what's true for you is true for you and what's true for you is true for you but the problem is is when all these truths collide something has to be true and it's certainly not arrogance being confident and knowing is is not arrogance we like confident people we like People who are sharing with us to be confident. For for example, I grew up flying. My dad was a pilot, and then the SEAL teams in the Navy, I was always in aircraft from every kind of airplane I was in, from helos. And it's always fascinating to to me, who is, I am not a pilot, although I think I could land a plane. I don't think I could land a helicopter. I would would kill us all if I were in a helicopter. But a plane, I sort of, I, I think I got the concepts of what needs to happen. Helicopter, it's going to be a straight ride down, and and uh, it's not going to be good. But I look into the cockpit, and you see when a pilot sits down, his seat like he goes in all through his legs. There's a bunch of buttons all in front of him. There's a bunch of buttons. They go sideways. They go above him. And I've all like I just always like asking the question why. And I always peek my head in the pilot. Like, what's this one do? Like the, the pop quiz. Oh, that one's for this. What's this one do? Tell me what this one does. What's that one do? What's this one do? What's this one do? And I can only imagine myself like hopping on an airplane, a pilot that's about to fly somewhere. I, you know, I don't really touch that one that much. I, I don't know what that one... The, hopefully this light... The flag, I don't know what that one does. I just hope that when we take off that we'll get to... No, we want a guy that says, or a lady that says, I know what every single button does. I got it under control. We'll get us from point A to point B safely. And how about a doctor? We have a dear friend. We affectionately call him nine toes. Can anybody guess why we call him nine toes? Because most of us have 10 toes. Not my friend, Eric. He has nine toes. He, uh, he discovered some pain in his pinky toe. And I, was prob- I probably should have been a better friend and, and helped coax him during this, this pain that he was going through. But it turned out that they were going to have to amputate his right pinky toe. I and mean, how, how much do you really need you, right? Pinky toe, you know, it's, he'll he be okay. I, I figured it was way far, the opportunity to make fun of him and harass him was far too great than to comfort him. <laughs> I, I don't view myself as his pastor. I view myself as his friend. And so friends are there to harass friends. <laughs> and so as he was going, and we basically christened him with the, the name Nine Toes as he went into his procedure, he said he was sitting on the table at the hospital. I won't tell you guys which hospital it's killing me not to i really want to and the doctor came in the doctor came in and started sharpening up the toe that he was going to cut off the problem was is the doctor started writing on the left pinky toe And he's like excuse me sir like everything we've been talking about is the other toe and the doctor kind of huh really well okay well i'll just write on that toe then (laughs) And he didn't have a whole lot of confidence walking into this surgery that the guy that was supposed to chop off his toe was like barking up the wrong toe and they're about to put him under. He wasn't feeling too good. Now, how about a mechanic? We want our mechanics to know what they're talking about. That they have confidence. Oh yeah, that doohickey over there needs to be replaced with another doohickey. I don't know what these doohickeys are. I just trust them. One car I had, it was an old beater car. It was awesome, except the air conditioner broke. Air conditioner is a requirement for me. And so I my whole my car repair philosophy is you go until the repair ultimately becomes more expensive than just replacing your car. And so the guy's like, no, we can figure it out. It's this little thing. And so then they did that little thing, and it didn't work. And he's like, okay, well, we're going to try another little thing. And then if this doesn't work, then we'll do something else. By about the third time, they're billing me for all of these little, like, we're going to go down this road. And if it doesn't work, you're still going to be billed for this this." investigative research that we're doing and i'm like well sh- should i get a second opinion and they're like no we'll figure it out it all worked out another guy w- our new house that we moved into we had a problem this one guy comes in and says oh yeah we're just gonna a little easy to solve this problem we'll just jackhammer up right here we'll replace it we can take out the concrete all the way replace all the things that you need replaced and we'll fix the piping no problem it'll be about eight hundred dollars oh are you sure what happens if that's not the situation he's like well then we'll problem solve from there and i'm like wait a minute and i still got will you refund my money if that's not he's like that doesn't work like that so i'm like i know that's why i'm going to get a second opinion got a second opinion this guy came up and said oh this guy doesn't know what he's talking about it's never that problem he spends like 15 minutes not even 15 minutes maybe three minutes he's like oh it's this little thing you just need a new screw he put the new screw in. He's like, "Yeah, that's about thirty-five cents." And I'm like, "Well, how much are you going to charge me?" He's like, ah, "I normally bill eighty dollars for a visit, but I'll just I'll charge you forty bucks." And I was doing cartwheels, giving the guy a hug, like, "Thank you, buddy, for the confidence." I enjoyed. And the point is, is that having confidence isn't arrogance a christian that says no i've come to know christ as my savior he saved me he's redeemed me shouldn't manifest itself into arrogance and hatred and isolation for those who haven't come to know christ before i think it was the song right before i came up to speak was that song that was a rendition or a remake of amazing grace this man john newton was a was an amazing writer before his life in Christ, he was a horrible man. He was a slave trader. He did horrible, horrible things. And amazing grace. He, he wrote, some say that he wrote to the beat of the slaves that were in the hole of his ship that stuck with him. And as he was out at sea and he almost lost his life, God gave him this amazing grace song. And, and the heart of that song, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a man who knows my Savior. And my Savior has redeemed me, transformed me. And I simply want to share this good news with others. That's not arrogance. That's confidence in knowing the Lord. And this is the spirit that John comes to verse 13. This now this elderly man in his mid 90s, he was probably one of the closest. He, he certainly was one of the closest three. Some have said that John was the closest of all the disciples to Jesus. He was like Jesus's kid brother. He he had access with Peter and his brother James that the other disciples didn't have access to at the cross. John is the one who's there looking up at Jesus as Jesus is dying on the cross. He looks down to John and then he looks at his mom and he says, she's now your mother. Take care of her. Tradition holds that John took care of Mary until her death, her dying day in Jerusalem. This is a man who loved Jesus so much. And was so transformed by him that he only regarded himself as the one whom Jesus loved, not out of arrogance, out of great humility. He was an arrogant man. He was a prideful man. He was the one who said, Hey, they won't let us spend the night, Jesus, because we're Jews. Can I pray the atomic prayer that fire comes from heaven and we turn them all into glass? Jesus shakes his head and says, No, John, you got it all wrong. The same guy that wanted to, to have the, the point of preeminence with Christ in all his glory, that he would be on one side and his brother would be on the other side. But at the end of his life, he's so transformed, so humble that he wants all people to come to know this great love. He wants those who have trusted in Christ to love like Jesus loved. He recognized that people were coming in, trying to steer them away or shake their confidence in Christ. And he begins by saying, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Right here, we begin to see, or we already should know by this point, because I've been cheating. I've been going back, going to this point throughout this whole letter. We see who the recipients are that he's writing. He's writing people who have believed in the name of the Son of God. That have received eternal life in Christ. That's who he's writing. He's not writing to unbelievers. He recognizes that people are coming in and saying, No, you can't be saved by grace alone. That's only one step in the process. Then your good works sort of close the gap. That's how you get eternal life. And he's writing them who have been steered away because if salvation is based on your own works, you'll never have confidence. You'll never know when it is enough. But he says, I'm writing you so that you may know. Is there any mincing of his words? Is there any lack of clarity? He says, so that the reason I'm writing you is that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants us to stand confidently to know that our salvation is based on Christ alone. I don't know about you. But early in my Christian life, I wrestled with this. A lot of time goes between Sunday to Sunday. I would trust in Christ on Sunday afternoon or Sunday morning. Really, it was Sunday evening where I was going to church. And then Monday would come. And then by Wednesday, I had done all kinds of bad stuff because I really I, I, I hadn't been walking with the Lord. By by the next Sunday, I thought I had lost my salvation. It, it took me going to Bible college and seminary to realize that that accepting Christ was like a one-time gig, that once you believe, you're sealed with the Spirit, that you have life eternal. All through the Scriptures, when it speaks of this life, it speaks of life eternal. Last week, I, wanted, I want to make it clear that if you could lose your salvation, is that eternal life? That would be a temporary life. If you were saved for a week, and then you lost your salvation... If if you did, not that you can, that would not be life eternal. If you made it five years, that's a good stretch. That's a pretty good run. And then you lost it, that wouldn't be life eternal. If you made it 50 or 60 years and lost your salvation, that would not be eternal life. The Bible makes it clear that when you trust upon Christ and his work on the cross, He made propitiation, he made satisfaction for your sins, the penalty that was due them, your sins past, present, and future, he died for them all. And in him, you have total assurance. If Satan starts feeling thoughts in your mind saying, oh, you did this, certainly you're not forgiven, I would reply back saying, you're absolutely right, my works don't save me. But Christ on the cross, we're told in 1 John 4, I think it's, what is it? 4.4. 4.4, 4, and I actually was thinking of chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He talks about Christ being our advocate, our attorney, facing the Father, defending us. That he made payment for our sins and our security is based on him alone. You're not saved on your own works or by your own merit. It's by him alone, and he wants us to know that if you've trusted in Christ, if you've believed in the name of the Son of God, then you may know you have life eternal. If you get anything from the study of 1 John, I pray that you would come to know that you're saved by faith or by grace through faith. God is the one who does the work on your behalf, and believing, it's activated. He starts with this assurance That we know that we stand secure in eternity because of what Jesus did. And then from this, he points to our confidence in prayer. Verse 13, he says, or 14, excuse me. This is the confidence which we have before him. You could translate that before as toward him. It's literally as you stand toward God that you have confidence Everything that I read in the scripture, when deity, when God appears to humanity, the response is falling on your face out of fear. From Isaiah, woe is me, for I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. Peter fishing. When Jesus says, cast the net there, and Peter says, hey, Jesus, you're a theologian. Why don't you stick in your world, and I'll stick in mine. There's no fish there, but because you ask, I'll do it. When he throws down the nets and the boats almost sink. And in that moment, Peter understood that Jesus was God. He falls on his face and he says, get away from me. Get away from me. Get away from me. I can't be in your presence. And yet John tells us that in Christ, we can stand toward, we can face God and we can make request that if we ask anything, he'll do what we ask. That's what's taught so often. You turn on the prosperity or you turn on the religious station and you you listen to a prosperity gospel person that you ask whatever you want. God will deliver. You name it. You claim it. Man, I've been naming a Porsche for years. <laughs> I've been I've been naming that God would remove all my tattoos for years. I've been naming all kinds of stuff. Nothing. I mean, I've, there's, I mean, he's delivered some stuff but it's not just like this rabbit foot that you are the genie bottle that I've heard it said once by somebody that Jesus is the end. He's not a means to the end, meaning that we use Jesus to to get our own stuff, that he's simply a stepping stone to acquire whatever we want. It's so easy to remove this one little phrase, which radically changes everything. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, where have we heard this phrase before? On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, as he was uh, making his way to be uh, arrested, they stop at the Garden of Gethsemane. We lose the meaning in the Greek. Gethsemane literally means olive press. If you go there today, as you walk down, I forget what the name of the little road is, before you, in the Kedron Valley, right before you make your hill up, there's some olive trees. They're like 2,000 years old. The Catholic Church has preserved this location of the olives. There's a, there's a cool little church that... They've set it to be very, the presence to be heavy. You're not allowed to talk in there. It's set up very dark. It's set up so that you feel this weight that Christ felt. That Gethsemane literally means the olive press pressing down. And here Jesus goes to pray. And as he's there praying, the weight of the world, the weight of the world's sin is pressed upon him. And there in that moment, what does he pray? Father, if this cup... What cup that he, was he about to drink? The cross. He understood that he who knew no sin would become sin, that the world's sin would be placed on him, that he would become our propitiation, our satisfaction. The wrath would do us, would be placed upon him. And he says, Lord, if this, Father, if this cup could pass from me, let it pass, but what? Not my will, but your will be done. And we're supposed to pray in this manner, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we have asked from him. So this confidence in prayer, and and as we look at prayer, well, how do we know that we're praying according to his will? That's a good question. I'm I'm not glad you asked this time. But I I think on one sense, we, we can pray prayers. Uh, we're told in romans which we'll get to that that even in our prayer not not to withhold your prayers out of fear that you're praying out of His will, which i know some people do they don't want to pray because what if i'm not praying in god's will well romans tells us listen when you pray when you let god know we're told that the spirit basically translates your prayer into his will and so you might think you're praying for one thing and the Spirit's saying that he thinks he needs a Porsche, but what he needs is a 1989 uh, Toyota Corolla. That the transmission's going to go out, the AC's going to blow. He's going to—that's what he needs. So give that to him. It's like, hey, I got a Toyota 89. This is awesome. We also know, like, a few years ago, when I was um, searching and beginning this path that would lead me to where I am today. It started out with me trying to impress a girl that was a missionary kid. I was an active duty Navy SEAL. I was on deployment, and I, was, I wanted to run a marathon. So I, if you want to run your first marathon, you get a Runner's World magazine, and I'm reading Runner's World magazine. I got to remember where I'm going with this. Oh, so yeah, I know where I'm going now. <laughs> I, and I see this ad, full-page color, in Runner's World magazine, and it was the Jesus Run Marathon. And you could raise funds. It's like the whole cancer thing that they do for, for raising money for certain things. Well, you could raise money and all the money would go to missionaries of your choice. Well, I knew this girl. She was a missionary kid. Her dad was a pastor of the church. How much would she how she'd be totally stoked if I raised a bunch of money for one of her missionary friends in Spain? The, the, the small print that I missed, I signed up and then it started dawning on me when I got back from deployment. The marathon was in Denver, which Denver, the Mile High City, not the place to run your first marathon. I almost went to be with Jesus that day. <laughs> I, uh, and, and before the race, they had a day of, of seminars where mission agencies would come and share. And I went to one, SIM, who he later applied with. And in this seminar, this missionary had created this little pamphlet or book, like a three-ring binder, that was pray according to scripture and he had basically broken out a bunch of bible passages that you could pull out one little leaflet and and you say i'm discouraged and so you find the discouragement leaflet and then you read all of the verses that deal with handling discouragement and so then you would pray these verses into your life or somebody else's life you could pray for missionaries you could pray it had everything listed and in that brief where he started briefing, that class, when he started sharing with us about this prayer guide that followed scripture, the one thing he said is, well, we know that we're closer to God's will if we're praying scripture. And so one, that's why Bible is so important. As we read, you can, you can go through, you can find a passage, and you can begin praying the truths that are in that passage. When God prays, we've heard it all. It's, it's probably redundant for all of us. God can answer three ways as we begin to pray. God can respond, yes, which we all love. Not always necessarily easy to decipher when God says yes. Because sometimes we say, Lord, I need to know if I'm supposed to move to Valley Center, to La Mesa, or to Wyoming. And God simply says, yes. (laughs) Any one of those you want to go to, that's fine with me. It's like, okay. Well, sometimes he says no. And when we get the no answer... We're great at kicking down doors. I've been trained to use dynamite, explosives, all sort of stuff. I know how to get through doors. And so God can say, no. And I say, well, okay, well, I'll push through this door and I'll make it happen. That's what happened here. Uh, Not so much here, but as I was leaving the Navy, I really felt God was calling me. We interviewed with SIM. They said, you can go to Africa. Uh, After we prayed about it, I don't really feel called to Africa. Then, Then we... Found out about a church. Uh, here. Well, no, then I went to New, not, I want to say New Mexico. I went to Arizona, Tucson. It's like, ooh, Tucson's really great, except Anna's going to like melt away. She has eczema and the dry skin in Tucson don't match. So I'm like, okay, we're not called here. Then it was like somebody said, oh, we'll give you a bunch of money to plant a church in the gas lamp in Little Italy. We pray, we really prayed on that one, but I just never got peace about Little Italy. And then I'm like, all right, God, I'm sick of all of this. I'm going to make something happen. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to apply with this little missions agency that I heard about in Bible college called Village Missions, and they supply missionaries to rural American Canada, and you have to raise half your support, and then you go. And I told Anna, and Anna was like, okay, dear, whatever you say, I'll, you're my husband. I'll stand behind you, and I'll support you 100%. And and then as I could hear her talking to her mom, she's like, I don't know what Gunnar's doing. I don't know what sort of punchy drink or whatever, like rural America. And so I started going down that road, and I went and talked to the president of my seminary asking for prayer. He prayed with me. He picked up his cell phone, and he called Alberto. And he says, hey, is that slot still open? I'm looking at him like, what is this guy talking about? He's like, I think you're called to Valley Center. And I come, and it's like, where's Valley Center? And then it's like the Lord basically grabbed me by the ear and said, "Gunner, stop. Stop kicking down doors. I got it under control. And here I am today and I'm thankful. When I look at the no response, I'm so glad that God says no to us. I look at the Apostle Paul. This is a man who, who was able to heal people. There were people that were crippled and he was able to rise them from their being crippled. Um, all sorts of cool stuff between like him and Peter now paul towards the end of his life he suddenly got really sick and you think this guy who healed a bunch of people could heal himself right that's just logical to me and, and we're told in second corinthians chapter 12 that paul had this very cool vision of like heaven and then god after he showed him this vision he stuck him with something a thorn in his flesh there's all kind of speculation about what this thorn in his flesh was nobody knows But Paul, the guy who healed all sorts of people, says, I prayed and asked God three times to heal me. And God kept saying, no. I said, well, why don't you deal with it? Like, take it, it matters into your own hands. And then he said that God told him that in your weakness, my strength is magnified and my grace is sufficient for you. Ah. And, And so much when God tells us no, or he restricts, or he puts these situations, we cling to him. The maybes. When God doesn't necessarily answer us, I could have probably used the Valley Center story here. The Bible in Isaiah chapter, what is it, 40, verse 31. Isaiah, this great book of the Bible, he says, those are yet those who wait for the Lord. Okay, they're waiting. They don't have an answer. They don't know which direction God's going to do. They get frustrated. They get angry. They take matters into their own hands. They force the issue. This is all the stuff I do. (laughs) But then Isaiah, what he says is those that wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. That so doesn't sound like me when I'm waiting upon the Lord. But the more I think about this, that when we pray, we're told that whatever we ask according to his will, he hears us. I don't think it necessarily. uh, He hears us. He responds to the way that's best for us because he loves us. And these times of maybe, these times of praying in hindsight when I've been in these moments where I'm wrestling, grappling, waiting, not knowing what God's going to do. If we allow ourselves to be patient, we actually grow closer to him. We get we get strengthened by trusting what he's doing. OK, Lord, I surrender waiting so often does this. I surrender, Lord, whatever you want. And that's exactly where God wants us. Um, Where am I at? Verse 14. Okay, this is the confidence we have before him. When we pray, we're children of God. He hears us. When we pray according to his will, he responds. It's this beautiful picture. The scriptures tell us over and over again that we're to be praying always. It's not wrong for you to pray, to intercede on your own behalf. That if you have a problem, if you have a concern, God wants you to bring it before him. Lord, help me in this area sometimes he he responds in the way that we ask of him other times and most often what i've seen in my own life is the thing that he changes is a condition of my heart that he's conformed me to his will and i begin seeing stuff differently now moving from this verse into verse 16 through 17 this is a terribly difficult this is one of those passages this is one of those that leaves most theologians with a Huh? I don't get it. I don't understand. I want to read it and I'll work through some observations about what it says. Um, First, he says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin. So one Christian seeing another Christian referred to as a brother or a sister in a sin. So you are not in sin. You see somebody else in sin. This This is where he begins with. Not leading to death. Okay, don't understand this one. We'll skip it. But there's a sin not leading to death. You see it. Then he says, he, the one who sees it, shall ask, and God will ask, and God will, for him, give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. Okay, so you see a brother or sister in sin, one not leading to death. Don't know what that is. We'll leave it at that. But a certain sin that doesn't lead to death, you're to pray for this person And it says that God will hear what you ask and he'll intervene in this situation and give life to that person. Then he goes on and he says, there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make a request for this. So he says, okay, there is a sin that leads to death. I'm not telling you to make a request for that one. Just let him kind of go. Huh? Verse 17, and all unrighteousness is sin and there's a sin not leading to death okay so very confusing very difficult the first thing i want to say is this from my catholic background i always want to sort of i hear stuff and i think oh this is what the catholic church and i was taught that there are venial sin, venial sins if i'm saying it right and then there's mortal sins. so there's some sin that you commit that doesn't cast you into hell and then there's other sins that basically when you do that one you're cast into hell forever can this be that no this cannot be that and the reason this cannot be that is because verse 13 that you may know you have eternal life the context one christian sees another christian it's clear that if you're a christian you're you're saved you're set you're sealed for delivery to heaven you have eternal life at the moment you believe Nobody understands what this means, but but when we see life and death in the Bible, it's used in two different ways. In one way, it's used in spiritual realm, like Ephesians chapter 2 talks about that before we came to know Christ, we were dead in our sins and transgressions. Before you came to know Christ, were you alive? Yeah, of course we're alive. We're living, we're walking. We had life physically, but spiritually we were dead like a fish floating down the river then God comes in, you believe upon Christ, and the death is made into life, that you spiritually are made alive, you're born again. But then there's life and death that speaks of physical life and death, that when it says you're alive and death comes, it talks about physically dying. I I wanna be very cautious moving forward. Uh, whenever I find a, a difficult passage like this, I start digging through guys that I respect, guys like uh, Charles Swindoll, David Jeremiah, alistair Begg, these men who handle the bible and go through the word and as they address it charles swindoll on this one i about fell off my chair with what he said he read verse 15 he went to verse 16 and he said i don't have a clue what this is saying <laughs> let's go to verse 18 people and he just like i'm like well all right at least i'm in good company and he quoted from a guy that I'd already read that that, that that sort of caught my attention. There's a guy by the name of Kenneth, Kenneth Weist. He's gone to be with the Lord. He's a great theologian of the original language. He has his word studies. They're little black books. They're like three little black books if you ever want a hard copy, um, but I have them electronically. I always go to him. And when I got to these verses, listen to what he says. This is a great mind. He knows the answer now because he's dead and with the Lord. And so he has clarity. But when he wrote his commentary on this passage, he says this. The present writer confesses his utter inability to understand this verse. The rest of the verse is an enigma to him. And he will not attempt to offer even a suggestion as what, as to its possible interpretation. I love this. I love it when these guys are like, this is, I don't have a clue. We're so far removed, and this has got to be a colloquialism that we don't necessarily understand what he's saying. I'm even more concerned when I think, I'm going to give it a stab. I'm going to kind of offer what I think about this. And when I said this to Anna, she started shaking his head. She like, well, you could, be, you could be in trouble. And I'm not really offering anything new. It's what other commentaries have, commentators have suggested this passage what i think could mean is that there are some sins that are so severe that god deals with the believer through death we see uh, in acts chapter 5 the first five verses the church had just taken off it was exploding uh, there was a man i believe it was barnabas i should have researched between services uh, he was a priest priests were not allowed to own land he became a believer by the time Acts chapter five rolls around, he'd been so convicted that he owned this land that he wasn't supposed to own. And so he sold it and then he basically donated all of the proceeds, all of the money from this land sale to the church. And as he did this, it sort of started a. Uh, like a wildfire of following. So other people started saying, hey, we're going to sell stuff. We're going to contribute to the church on our own accord. We're going to donate so that people's needs can be met. This is, this is real tangible love. And throughout history, regardless of what our current commentators on, on culture are, the Christian's love has so motive, motivated them to give and to help one another in ways that no other group has done over history. But as this is happening, there was this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They had some land. That, hey, this is pretty good. People are selling their land, giving and Look, at they're getting kind of popular. This is all my commentary. It's not really in the text. So they decide that they're going to sell their property, and they're going to give all of the money to the church. They sell their property, and something happens between the time that they sell it and that they donate the money. They decide that they're going to withhold some of the money and yet put out that they gave it all. And so they go through with this plan. Ananias, the husband, makes a sale, brings in his money. I don't know how much he kept back; it doesn't say, but he kept back enough. He goes to Peter and the disciples and he say, "Hey, I just sold all my property, and here's all the money from the sale. Praise be the Lord; He's good." Drops down dead. Whoa. All the guys pick up his body. They go bury him. After they're done burying him, they're making their way back. And at this time, his wife, Ananias and Sapphira, I have to say them together because I don't know them individually. So Sapphira walks in. Hey, how's everybody doing? Peter says, hey, that money that your husband gave, did you give all of it? Yeah, of course we gave all of it. And she was a little bit different. She just didn't drop down dead at that point. He says, you know what? Your husband was here. He said the same thing. He dropped down dead. And the men that just buried your husband, they're at the front door, and they're going to haul you away too. (laughs) Boom, she drops down dead. Ah! Egads! this seems pretty severe. And then we're told that from this moment that that there was fear of God, that there was reverence for him and his holiness. And in this great consequence, I believe that we'll see Ananias in, in heaven Like, I don't believe that they were lost their salvation or they weren't saved. But in that moment, we're told that the fear of the Lord increased and then the church just multiplied. That out of this, it grew and it grew and it grew. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, if you turn there with me. In this chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you guys can open your Bibles. I don't hear pages turning. Come on, this how we learn it. Got to prompt the class. This is how we learn the Bible. It's good for us. This table of contents, if you don't know where you're going, don't be shy. And in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, this church, Corinth, is they were out of control. Uh, There was a letter written prior to this letter that I think Paul was so mad that it didn't make it into the Bible, that God just said, no, we're going to crumple that one up and get rid of it because you were too upset. And so then he comes to chapter 5, and Paul had gotten word that there was grievous sin in the church. It goes on to say in verse 1 that somebody, that there was a guy within the church, a professing Christian, who had taken his father's wife. We don't know the exact dynamic of what that was, but what we do know is Paul says, dealing with this, that the immorality that was within the church was worse than the Gentiles. And... He goes on to unpack this story of this guy. And we see before we get to Paul's prayer that in 2 Corinthians, Paul basically comes back to this situation. This this people, they had repented. They had come back. They had been restored to the body. And yet the church was still treating them harshly. And Paul says, listen, they've been restored. Don't continue being harsh to them and drive them away. What you want is you want repentance repentance and you want reconciliation, you have it. When I said, don't eat with, and they were basically treating everybody poorly. And he said, listen, when I was talking about not eating with a sinner, I wasn't talking about non-believers. Non-believers, where would they go? You're supposed to have relationships, but within the body of Christ, we're held to a different standard. And by the time we get down to verse five, after he's dealing with this man who had had relations with his father's wife, really verse four, he says, in the name... Of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirits, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. As a pastor, I can't imagine praying this prayer. To be quite honest, to say, "Hey, there's somebody that's in so much sin." Hey, guys, we've decided that so and so, Jane Doe, has had issues. They've been having this problem. Decided with the power of the Lord Jesus that we're going to just let them go so that Satan can kill them, that they'll be destroyed, that the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So, Paul, this is one of those things that there's a sinner, somebody who's walking with God. They are a believer, but they are committing a sin. There's something that's so grievous that basically God takes them home to free them from this the body of destruction it's it's complex or maybe it's not complex it's just hard to understand or hard to fathom Um, i know that in bible college and seminary there was i forget which level it was i had a class and i particularly loved my seminary because the professors i felt were guys that had been in the ministry for 40 50 years and then they were passing the baton on to the next generation and i liked this subject matter but so often it was the side questions and and stuff that was brought up. And there was a student that was currently in the ministry and there was a sin he was dealing with. And he said, I am, it's funny that Rick comes back right for this part. (laughs) You'll understand why in a second. (laughs) Sorry, it's just, you made me laugh. (laughs) Inside joke, you guys will all be brought in in a second. And so the question was dealing with sin. And then the teacher got all serious and he's like, my hardest day of ministry was 30 years ago. And church was about to start, and five minutes before church began, I basically got word and, and confirmed information that my worship guy was having an affair with his wife. And, I, and he's like, you guys go, okay, go take your break. It's time for break. Go take your break. We're like, what? He's like, take your break. So we all took our break and we ran back we're like, what happened? How'd you deal with it? And as he's talking to us about this, I'm thinking, I don't want to go into the ministry. Being a Navy SEAL seems easier than this. Like, I don't, who wants to deal with this? And we're like, well, what'd you do? And he said, I pulled him aside and I said, you're not leading worship. We're going to go without worship today. And uh, tonight, either you can go and confess to your wife or I'm going to go and I'm going to basically squeal on you and let her know what's going on. And we we're just like, all of us are really second-guessing our call into the ministry. Is this really what we want to do? And I looked at Rick during the last service. I said, you better not do that to me. And he's like, oh, no, I'm not. I'm, uh. So when he walked in right at this point, I'm like, oh, man, you must, you must be a sucker for punishment, you know? And, uh, and, and so we we're like, well, what happened? And he's like, well, I ended up going with him, and, and he spoke, and I kind of shared. And, and he's like, but the, there was never any true repentance, and the problem continued. And uh, they left the church, and I heard a year later from the wife, as she, she had been calling him, trying to figure out she wanted to stay because she she took her vow seriously, and she's like, I don't feel called to leave, but he's still doing this. And within a year, the my professor said that the guy came up with like a very aggressive cancer and was dead within a year. And he's like, I can't judge what happened. He's like, but when I read these passages and I see this guy that, So many people were so gracious and trying to bring reconciliation and he wouldn't respond that I he's like, man, I don't want to cast judgment. But it's just so eerie how this that God took him from the earth to basically I he's like, I believe that this is what God did. And I don't know if this is what Paul is writing here I know that if we turn the pages a few more to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we deal with communion, every time we do communion, I come to this passage. It's the, the clearest passage on the Lord's Supper. And in verse 30, dealing with getting your heart right for communion, he says, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep sleeping means death he's saying that as we're coming to communion we're doing it improperly and because of the sin god's removing people and he's he's purifying the church so i don't know i I should go back to west and say i shouldn't this part of the message i probably shouldn't have gone down this road and taken my stab and at what this means uh verses 16 and 17 are difficult we don't really know I, i do think that some points that we can draw clearly god takes sin seriously i want to draw our attention between verses 14 and 15 to 16 a practical point of application is what i see verse 14 and 15 we have confidence in prayer to ask god a request for ourselves. when we get to verses 16 and 17 it's okay to say i don't have a clue what this is saying But the one thing I'm certain on is that the focus goes, it's still on praying, and it goes from praying for yourself to praying for others. And I think as Christians, when we see a fellow brother in sin or stumbling, we should have a loving, compassionate heart and focus our prayers towards them. When you see somebody who's in sin, somebody who's not doing right, it's love to confront them. It's love to be accountable uh, accountable to them it's love bless you it's love to say i'm praying for you and to continue praying for them that god would change their heart and bring about repentance and restoration of the koinonia that they have available to them with the father the last few verses 18 through 20 is the summary this is the end this is the conclusion of the letter he begins in verse 18 we we know that no one who is born of God sins. You guys did a great job holding your gasp. This is a habitual sin a, that that if you're born of God, sin should not dominate your life anymore. Over the, it's like the stock market. There's ups and downs, but over a significant chunk of change, if you're with Christ, you should should see changes. I I see things like this in the bible all throughout while i totally believe in the assurance of god i also uh, the assurance of salvation i also see that god does not want to assure somebody of their salvation who isn't saved and as i became a christian i still struggled with all kind of stuff and i believe looking back i believe i was a christian but in those moments those morning afters going ah Maybe I'm not even saved. I see that the child of God doesn't do these things. And it was that that God used to convict me to help me sort through issues that I was struggling with. And then as I work through those issues, it's like there's another one on deck that was always there. And it sort of bubbled up. Okay, now we're going to work on this one. And I think this is going to go on until the day I die and I receive my new body. That's free of sin and stain, and I'm in heaven and glory. But he said, "For all, Amen." He says, "We know that no one is born of God sins habitually, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one doesn't touch him." That there's assurance here; you don't have to worry about Satan getting you out of control. And the word in the English is 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 far too subtle, doesn't touch him. It, it could be translated to grab onto, to cling to, to hold on. That the one who is born of God cannot be hold, held onto by Satan. It reminds me of when I was a kid, I went to a Chinese restaurant and and I like seafood in this Asian restaurant. They had stuff that was out of the ocean that I didn't know existed. And I got everything down, but there was, I still to this day don't know. It was like, a, it almost looked like seaweed. It was like a little, ball like and it was i could not pick it up for the life of me not with my fingers not with anything there's probably a spoon but i didn't try but by that point in the operation i wasn't sure that i wanted to put it into my my mouth and so i've been trying to think of like slippery things maybe like the ice cube that falls on the ground And you know when you guys just can't pick up the ice cube off the it's like there and no matter what you do you can get a fork or something and it's like well i'm just gonna let it melt and i'm gonna wipe it up that's how god Describes his children with Satan. You don't have to fear him. You're safe in his hands. If you have anxiety, which I have the gift of. We're staying up at night worrying. This is where we start praying scripture like Psalm 23. Which is just blanking. I know I shall not want. He lays me beside green pastures to pray this assurance. No, I am a child of God. Greater is he that is in me that is in the world. I need not fear. And then this passage gets very sad. Verse 19, he says, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This lies in the power or the power of is added to the text. It's not in the Greek. They have to supply it. Uh, Dwight Pentecost on this one said, he describes this person who's not in Christ as a baby in the lap of Satan. I have that cute little guy back there that's making nerve. And so this is very fresh in my brain. When you have a new baby, they're totally helpless. You lay them in their lap and you can like feel the bumps and soft spots in their head. You realize that they are totally in your control. There's nothing that they can do to protect themselves. It's totally up to you to protect them. And when he writes about the one that's not in Christ, he says the world out there, they sit in the lap of Satan, that he controls them. That this should bring about great compassion for us to share the good news of Christ with the world that doesn't have Jesus. I love the Discovery Channel. I love watching the, the female line. It's never the male line. They're all lazy, and they make the female do all the work. And they go out and hunt, and you'll hear the British guy with all his, like, very professional like stoic voice and there she lays in the prowl and you can see the baby gazelle got away from the pack and she's gonna be and then you're you're sitting there going just get away run little baby gazelle and you know what's gonna happen this thing's gonna come out and eat it all up a few weeks ago grace and i are reading with elizabeth and somehow a snake came up and how snakes are able to consume stuff so I'm on my phone. I'm like, hey, I have YouTube right on my phone. I bet I could find a, a, a snake eating a mouse or a rat. And so I find it. I start playing it. I'm about maybe five seconds into the video. And I have this like wave of like warning light. Like, oh, man, if Anna sees me showing the kids this video, she might kill me. Or like the, if I freak out the kids, like this isn't good. None of that happened. It all worked out well. But I remember this snake like they drop in the mouse and even in these moments like i'm trying to show her how the snake can like open its mouth like we just read about and can just like suck that whole thing in and you can see it going down the body but as soon as the guy dropped in that little rat into the thing i suddenly take on the mouse's side get away little guy come on don't go over there and they're just walking around aimlessly and then all of a sudden the snake just and you see the little guy twitching and he opens up his mouth and it's like this slow process. The kids loved it. They, <laughs> they, they ate it up, pun intended. <laughs> they, they. But looking at that little rat and the snake, that's exactly what the world is out there with apart from Christ. And we need to help them and realize that hey, the Bible describes Satan on this earth as a lion that roars around seeking to devour as a snake, This is what he is. And he says this, those don't know how Christ, they're in his lap. And we need to rescue them because in Christ, you're safe. The snake can't swallow you. The lion can't rip you into shreds. You're secure in his arms. He goes on to say, and we know that the son of God has come. This is Christmas. Amen. We know that the son has come. Jesus didn't come into existence when he was born into that major. He existed in eternity past. He took on the form as a man and was born that Christmas day. He came so that he could save sinners from their sin. We know that he has come. And in the next few verses, we're going to see the word true a bunch of times. And he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. If we've come to understand who Jesus is, we've believed upon him. At that moment, we're sealed with the spirit. Then we're placed into his scope of authority. And then this last phrase, I have it highlighted. This is the true God and eternal life. This is Jesus. This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why we take advantage of this season that we love so much, or at least I do. I love Christmas carols. I love the feeling of like having the Christmas trees up and all of this stuff. It's the one time of year that those who would never go to church are receptive to, yeah, I'd like to go to a Christmas Eve service where we can hear this, that the truth of God could go out, that a seed would be planted, that they could be rescued from the evil one. And then the last phrase of this whole where we end with it, like, This phrase, it just comes out of like left field. Like, where did this come from? What? Normally they end with like peace and grace or grace and peace. My beloved, the apostle Paul. John just sort of goes, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Guard yourselves from idols. It seems out of place to end with. But it ties in everything that this letter was about, because as we go about our life, the evil one is trying to to get us off track, to try to mess up our theology, that it we're that our salvation is based on our own good works. He says, guard yourselves from idols. An idol is anything that might take the place of God in your heart. It could be anything. It could be your retirement savings or your lack thereof of retirement savings. Any, like, oh, I need money. That's where my security comes from. So if I have a lot of it, I'm secure. And if I don't have any, oh, I'm in trouble. It could be our health. Now I'm not saying that drinking bottled water is bad and eating organic and all like the healthy stuff. Like it's okay to like be good stewards. But we can take it to such an extreme that our God is our actual health because this is all we have. it, it could be the toys you have. I saw this t shirt last night when I should have been studying. I got dist- distracted. Another buddy of mine post, another pastor buddy, I should clarify. He posted like a, a, a t shirt that only pastors would find funny. And I posted on Anna's Facebook that I want this sweatshirt. It's in the Greek and it says, Doulas uh, Jesu Christo, slave of Christ. I'm like, that's a great sweatshirt. But one of them that I really like that I'm like, oh, that'd be too like offensive. It said, Jesus saves. And then underneath it said, you from the American dream. And I thought, well, I'm a patriot. I like the American dream. But there's some warning there. The American dream is, in a nutshell, he who dies with the most toys wins. That you want your land. You want your big house. You want your car. You want your 2.5 children. You want the picket fence. You have all of this, and you attain happiness. And God may give that to you. It's okay. Okay. But our contentment doesn't come from that stuff. Jesus is the end. It's him that we worship. He's not a means to the end. Jesus is not your rabbit foot or your genie's bottle that if you believe in him, then you have access that he's your butler to answer all of these requests. He is the end. He is the one that we will be worshiping in eternity forever. And so Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this powerful little letter. Lord, as I reflect on this letter, some things come to mind. Father, as John opens it, he prays. He says that he proclaims this these things that we might have fellowship with the Father, with the apostles who have gone on before. And so, Lord, we pray that if nothing else, that we would come to know Jesus as Savior, that we would abide with him if we've trusted in him, and that we would experience this koinonia, this this fellowship with you, this closeness. Father, we pray that you would continue to, to expose us uh, to your love, that we would understand just with more clarity, with more understanding how much it is that you do love us, that you care for us. That as Keith Green sings, that you put this love in my heart and that it would just overflow from within us, that we would we would experience your love, we would love one another, Father, help us to to love like Jesus loved. Father, help us to keep a close watch on our hearts that we would guard ourselves from the evil one. Lord, help us not to stray. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.